You Can't Spell Inclusion Without a D, the podcast that explores the power of inclusion and why disability is an important part of the workplace diversity and inclusion conversation. Produced by the Ontario Disability Employment Network, with your hosts, Jeanette Campbell and Dean Askin. Hello there. The United Nations estimates worldwide there are between 180 million and 220 million youth who have a disability. Here in Canada, there are over 540,000 between the ages of 15 and 24. Over 100,000 of these youth are what's known as NEET, that's N-E-E-T, or not in education, employment, or training. So if you're a hiring manager or HR recruiter who's listening right now, it means 77% of this NEET group, that's over 83,000 young people who have a disability, are potential new employees. That is a lot of young, fresh talent being overlooked for a talent pipeline that can help businesses stay successful in the future. Now, as you're listening to this, think back for a minute. Did you have a part-time or summer job when you were in high school or during college or university? Personally, I remember doing things like painting, digging fence post holes, pumping gas 10 hours a week after school, and working on school custodial staff, cleaning classrooms for a couple of summers. And you know what, Dean? Uh, I was a volunteer. So I was a candy striper in a hospital. I worked at a local burger joint. I worked in a small restaurant. Uh, I did babysitting and I even did a stint in a warehouse where I was inserting flyers into the community newspaper. So what's that all about? Well, research has shown that when youth who have a disability are part of the labor force early through those kinds of part-time or summer jobs while they're still in high school, their future success is greater. But here's the thing to think about. For youth who have a disability, the unemployment rate is significantly higher than it is for young people without disability. And Jeanette, that's not just in Canada, but in every society around the world, according to research noted by the UN Department of Economic and Social Affairs. So what's going on? Well, that's what we're looking at on this episode of You Can't Spell Inclusion Without a D. Right. Why is there an imbalance of opportunities? And how do we build an equitable future for disability talent? So joining us to explore and answer those questions are Dr. Jennifer Krausen, PhD, and Carolyn McDougall. Now, Jennifer holds a Bachelor and a Master's of Social Work from McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario, and a PhD from the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. She's a registered social worker with over 25 years of experience in child welfare policy and research. And here's some full disclosure. Jennifer is a diversity and inclusion specialist with us here at ODIN, and she leads ODIN's Canadian Youth Success Strategy Initiative. And Jennifer is going to tell us more about that. Our other guest, Carolyn McDougall, is an occupational therapist at Holland Blue Review Kids Rehabilitation Hospital in Toronto. She's the lead for the hospital's transition strategy, Employment Participation Pathways. Carolyn is also the business liaison for Holland Blue Review's co-site host role for Project Search Toronto. And she coordinates employment programming for over 80 youth who have a disability annually. Now, we mentioned a minute ago that early work experience sets youth up for long-term success. Well, Carolyn, and I know Jennifer too, 
are passionate about that. That is the value of work and the importance of gaining work experiences from an early age for you to have a disability. Jennifer and Carolyn, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. I want to jump right in here. Now, we all know there's lots of layers at play here, but I want to know what do you think are the biggest barriers to employment for young people who have a disability? And whoever wants to jump in first, take it away. Sure. I mean, I'm sure both Carol and I have lots to say about this question. Um, you know, I think I'll name a few. I'm sure Carolyn will have some to name as well. But for me, you know, two of the big ones are attitudes and assumptions. And what I what I mean by that is, uh, you know, added assumptions about people who have disabilities, um, and uh, particularly about youth who have disabilities, and this belief that perhaps they don't want to work, or they're not able to work or they're not able to access the same things that some of their peers might access. I mean, Jeanette talked about the idea of babysitting and being a candy striper. You know, how often is it that you've seen a young person with a disability in one of those roles? You know, so I think part of it is this belief that, that many people still hold on to, including, and I know we're gonna unpack this a little bit, including families. Um, you know, about what is possible for their young person who has a disability. And, and that becomes so important in terms of that young person getting experience. You know, so for me, those are, are that is such an important thing to, to begin this conversation with. I agree, Jen. Uh, um, I might have given a very similar answer, but so instead, I'll, I'll try to add to that. Um, I think that my, it, um, I guess about 15 years of experience in working with young people and families and communities in this area, the idea of getting involved early, by which uh, for me, I mean during high school uh, in, in, employment, in a range of typical employment-related activities, I... Um, we definitely hear a lot, and I've, I've thought very much about the access issues sort of in our community. So, you know, the types of typical experiences that uh, a young person without a disability in a family might not think about, like, okay, go to the corner store and pick up milk that we ran out of, you know, that might, maybe that's a much harder for a young person who uses a wheelchair because maybe the store has a step to get up into it and there's a missed opportunity or um, you know, the doing things outside the home and outside the school, like a community center, it can be harder to get involved in team sports or other types of activities like that from an early age if the community center perhaps is not that experienced at inclusion with young people with disabilities or the young person may need a, a support person and you know the first couple times they go. So there are a lot of um, there are still a lot of access issues in society and I think um, in intentionality in addressing uh, those barriers um, and and um, working with young people and families sort of in their community to to address those and enable those opportunities is is really where we need to focus. Now, you know, you've mentioned things like access and attitude of the barriers. What do you think needs to change most? Jennifer, what do you think? It's hmm, a good question because it's hard to know which is which needs to come first, right? You know, um, I I I guess I I do think attitude is 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 so important because, you know, I think we have to rethink how we think about disability. It is so often looked at from a health lens, from a from a deficit lens versus a lens of strength, you know, and and you know we so often you know our systems have been set up 
have been set up that way, if that make, if that makes any sense, you know, and so what I mean by that, like in education, in order to access additional supports and accommodations for a youth in school, they have to have a diagnosis or they have to have a, they have to have some kind of label around them, you know, versus just let's just think about universally, what does this child need in order to be successful in this setting, right? So I think I go back to attitude. I think it's such a it's such a significant barrier when it comes to this conversation. Yeah, I think um, I would say like a focus on like really focusing on this um this topic youth and what sort of we as a society as a whole need to do to enable as we've sort of already been pointing out there, there's very many facets so awareness building for young people and families that employment is possible and that people with disabilities work in a wide range of careers and industries and and also for employers same message and and for both how how, how do people go about it um, and then the resources um, as well, particularly for young people and families when they, they need supports to take some of those steps. I think that funding and resources um, is, is a, a big topic, especially sometimes that's a bit siloed, gen-referenced education or within, um, or some monies within health or some money maybe within community and social services when, when there's a young person and with a family who needs some support to take some of the early steps. Um, we need the funding to sort of flow to them to uh, enable and support them. And still, Carolyn, you know, jumping off of that, you're talking about funding and resources, uh, making sure that there is this focus on the topic of youth. Uh, Jennifer, you know, you're you're talking about uh, attitudes and and assumptions and how all of these things intermingle around the barriers to access. Uh, employment in our society. So we've identified some of those things. So I'm going to ask you, what are you seeing that's happening right now where things are being done right in terms of either creating or supporting these early employment opportunities for youth who have a disability? Carolyn, let's start with you. Um, I think there is um, an understanding, like when, whenever there are research or policy reports, you, you know, youth and youth with disabilities, you know, often front and center. And so that's a good thing. Um, I think youth service organizations and school boards are really recognizing that this is a, an equity deserving group of young people and where maybe our services and supports are, are not lined up right. Um, so I think that those are like early early signs of progress and that's great we can build from um and it's it's sort of the work we we need to do collectively to bring ourselves together to develop national provincial local strategies and the policy and programs that really kind of line up with that priority yeah and i would i i think one of the things i would add to that um jeanette and it, it comes from some of the research that i did on behalf of odin um, for the youth success strategy, you know, where we did look at what what was what was working in terms of services to support youth who have disabilities and employment and what was perhaps a barrier. And one of the things that that research told us, which other research really confirms, and I think practice confirms, is that where there were communities where there was a champion, so for example, within the school board system or within a, a local service provider, there was somebody who really held that belief you know, that employment should be a priority for young people who have a disability and, and really took that on, if you like, and created partnerships and created conversations within the school, 
um, within local employment service providers um, and with local businesses. Like, so where I was hearing those things existed, they were having greater success in terms of giving exposure to young people to things like co-ops, um, things, things like summer jobs. You know, in the communities where that's a little bit more challenging or where those don't exist, you know, so I heard from some communities how they may have a good working relationship with one school board in their community, but not with the other, you know, that that same partnership and same conversation was not happening. So I think there are things we can all do, you know, all of us in, in our communities to think about what are we doing um, in order to kind of help facilitate this conversation. Um, and, and if we are educators, let's ask those questions. What are we doing? What is my school board doing um, in order to think about employment, think about what we need to be thinking about now, you know, for, for young people in order to help them move on successfully to employment. And I think that that nicely leads me into this next sort of question that's that's circulating in my head, um, because you're, you know, both of you are talking about progress is being made there's you're seeing champions you're seeing where these recipes for success are um you know schools are paying attention to it youth are really being recognized as an equity deserving group um there's a lot of policy and uh, research and policy now starting to become a focus uh so i'm going to ask a sort of backwards why type question so what are the long-term ramifications of youth of, of this specific group of youth being overlooked? What, what happens when we overlook the talent base um, at a societal level, at a thinking about our economic competitiveness, thinking about our future in the global market, and even just where we, where we stand in things like with the UN and, and the human rights? Yeah. What, um, Jennifer or Carolyn, what do you think? Yeah, I can start on that one. I mean, for sure, it's a mislabor force opportunity. You started this conversation, Jeanette, with talking about what young people in general bring to the workforce, a lot of creativity and passion and innovation and, um, you know, that and also the numbers that, you know, we're we're struggling at the moment with with the worker shortage. And, and this is a, you know, a group that is, is underutilized. So, um, that and and the economic, yeah, all the all the economic consequences of that, I think as well around um, the impact for individuals and for populations in in health over our our, our lifespan. Um, we really we know that employment is linked, obviously, with income and and uh, related to social and physical and mental well being. And so when people are not well connected, um, in 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 terms of being part of the labor force, um, often there are health impacts and, and that's something that um, is devastating for the individual and costly for society as a whole too. I mean, I was just gonna say exactly as you just said, um, Carolyn, you know, it is a social determinant of health being employed, you know, having, having a sense of self-worth, you know, and we know that that can come from employment, um, you know, and we also, you know, I think parent, you know, we hear from parents that they worry about what the future is going to look like for their child, you know, and if we could change that narrative a little bit to, you know, let's try and encourage your child to, to develop a sense of independence that you might not have thought was possible for them. You know, I think there's so many benefits, um, potentially at the, both the individual family and societal level, um, you know, that you're referencing. You know, businesses and organizations and, you know, have to have a strategy for moving forward. And 
I know we've been, you know, we've been, you know, throwing around this this term, the, the Canadian Youth Success Strategy. Uh, so, Jennifer, for our listeners, tell us what this is, why it's so important. You know, what is the Youth Success Strategy doing to bring all of these parties together, and and why? Great and big question. Um, you know, so certainly the vision. Let, let me just start with what the vision for the Canadian Youth Success strategy is and now the youth that I will kind of rewind a little bit in that whilst we're talking about all youth who have a disability the Canadian youth success strategy does focus in on those youth who have a developmental um, disability so just to sit just to say that before I, I talk about the vision for that but we also know that that makes up a large number of, of young people who have disabilities but our vision is that all young people who have a developmental or intellectual disability that they are prepared for and they are supported for a future that includes employment so that's that's what our goal is but when we kind of rewind a little bit from that we did some research that we did which it helped us to inform the Canadian youth success strategy where we looked at what were some of those barriers what were some of those things that were getting in the way for young people um, to be prepared for a future that includes employment and we heard things like that there they didn't you know that the parents of children with intellectual or developmental disabilities didn't hold those same expectations for their child that they might for a child who doesn't have a disability. So what I mean by that is they didn't necessarily expect that they were going to be involved in doing chores. They didn't necessarily um, expect that their future was going to include employment. You know, we also heard that though that these, this group of young people were not being prepared in the same way for employment um, that their peers were. So what I mean by that is they weren't being given the same opportunity to to get into co-op experiences during high school they weren't developing the same literacy skills as their peer their peers they weren't developing the same soft skills so this idea of of talking about what it is that you want to do with your life you know how often were you asked I and mean, we've all talked about those summer jobs we had how often did you get asked when you were younger what do you want to be when you grow up you know are we asking that question of young people who have a developmental disability so what we're doing with the Canadian Youth Success Strategy is we've taken all of that information up and I've really, there's a lot more that, that I could go on about for hours for you, with you, but I won't. Um, you know, we, we packaged that up in, into a webinar, which we delivered to over 600 um, families and educators here in Ontario. And we, we're taking this show on the road, if, if you like. Um, we, we've created a webinar that we're going to train other organizations across Canada to deliver in um, Nova Scotia, Manitoba, and British Columbia. So what we're doing is we're giving them the tools uh, to deliver this workshop to parents, to empower parents to think differently about what their future might hold for their child, to ask questions of and empower them to be able to go into the school and say, here's the kind of things that my child may need in order to be successful. Um, and to empower the school to have those conversations with parents, because it's not just about one or the other. You know, sometimes we heard from educators that they um, have parents who are saying, look, this is not for my child. This, this employment is not going to be part of my child's future. So it's being able to allow that conversation to happen between the two. Um, so we're, we're taking this webinar on the road. We're also introducing other elements uh, such as the job path, which is a curriculum that can be used by educators and by employment service providers. And we're, we're sharing that with other communities across Canada. So we're going at it from lots of different angles in order to hopefully create um, and, and activate and, and some empower 
uh, some greater conversations around employment for youth within those communities. So that's a, a very quick nutshell. There's obviously more information. If people are interested, they're very welcome to, to be in touch with me for more details about it. Now, one of the words that stuck out in, in what you're saying uh, was the word expectations. So how important is that expectations factor? I mean, how is it important for, for everyone, for parents, educators, employers, and even youth themselves? I think it's so important. And, and, I, I, and Caroline, I'm sorry, I sort of jumped on that, but it's a word that excites me, especially from the perspective of parent. Um, and when I deliver this workshop, I really talk from the perspective of being a parent. Um, I am a parent of, a, of a, an 11, almost 11 year old boy who has Down syndrome. Um, and I recall very vividly when I was pregnant, um, being told by people around me to lower my expectations for his future. You know, so parents are being given this, this kind of information when they're also being told, you know, that their child is going to have a disability or indeed that their child has a disability if that diagnosis comes after birth. You know, so I, I, I think we need to change that. We need to say to parents, no, you know, like why, why should I have lowered my expectations for my son? Yes, my son's life has has followed a slightly different path to his peers, but there's no reason why his future can't hold things that I want for my other children. So expectations for me is such an important part of this conversation because it, it guides the way we parent, it guides the way we educate, it guides the way we employ, you know, so it, it has to be part of the conversation. Well, why do you add to that a bit or no, you're going to go on Dean first. I, I, well, you know what? I, 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 I'm, in, I'm interested to get your perspective on, on this one too. You know, why do you think expectations, the higher expectations aren't happening the way they need to? Is it because, you know, of what parents are told by, you know, medical professionals about you know, what they can expect for their child who has a disability? What, what do you think? I mean, I think that um, it's true that in general, we absorb things that we see or hear in society. Um, and so when, you know, yes, when we get messages from an educator or a medical professional or another family or a past experience that we've had, you know, it, it's hard sometimes to to not not just take that in and let that be the basis that we act from. So I I but this idea of like, I really agree with what Jen said that like, when we hold high expectations, we, whatever our role is in that young person's life, uh, we we act to, to help those expectations come to life. So um, I guess in my role as an occupational therapist and I am situated in a, a children's hospital, like, I mean, I, I see definitely very much firsthand how much like, the power of one person even in your life, let alone multiple who believe that you can do and is there with you helping you take some of those initial steps or, or asking you questions, you know, about your goals and your hopes. Um, those things are incredibly powerful. And, and so I guess, you know, in the way that you frame the question around why doesn't it happen enough? I, I it makes me think that as a society, yeah, we need to it's, you know, amazing. Odin is out there sharing that message. Odin and Helm Blurview are as well, for sure. And we we want to share success stories and and really um, for young people as individuals and, and and employer success stories as well, all types of success stories that, that you know, for educators as well, that that help people see, um, you know, this, this 
can happen. Many people are um, involved in uh, in working, and and these are some of the steps and how to. Um, I think the more that that's out there and just part of our our general vibe in society, the 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 easier it'll be to to take these beginning steps. And you know, Carolyn, you we we mentioned in the in the intro that there's a lot of things that you do at Holland Bloorview and a lot of things that you're involved in. And one of those things is around this coordination of employment programming uh, for for the youth that uh, that you interact with there. And I think it was we said about 80 80 people, 80 young people a year. And you're alluding to this idea of, you know, there's a lot of success stories out there. There's a lot of, of good examples that uh, that people can can review and understand. Um, so tell us what what does give us an example? What does success look like and and how does that success happen? Sure. So we uh, because of the age and stage that we support young people at um one piece of what we do is about connecting young people uh, who are uh, searching for a summer job and employers. And I'll share a, a story from that. There are, there are some earlier stages as well where we support young people to get involved in volunteering, et cetera. But um, I think um, really speaking to the idea of like employer how-tos and and youth support, um, last summer we were we worked quite closely with um an organization called Fidelity, a number of other organizations too, but I'll just share this example with Fidelity Investments. They've been interested for a number of years. They just as an organization decided, you know, we want to make sure that um, youth with disabilities, inclusive of youth who may still be in high school, are considered as part of our youth programming in general, because like many financial services organizations, they're very active in working with post-secondary education with youth. So they made a corporate decision. They looked for a, a partner organization that they could work with to sort of think about how are we going to do this. And, um, you know, we, we started in a small way. Um, it, we talked about supports like um, understanding what might be some of the areas that Fidelity typically recruits summer uh, interns into, um, looking at then, you know, given that we at the same time are supporting young people who are seeking jobs for the summer in terms of, you know, the preparation steps of, you know, of course, we always jump to thinking about getting the resume ready, but also like, how do you, what route are you going to take to get to work, making sure you, you know, uh, have all your paperwork assembled that you're going to sign up with, T talking through any accommodations that you may need to ask for, or anything that you might need to share about what helps you to do a good job on the job. So we worked with them to make matches um, each summer now for a number of summers. Um, provide some training up front when it's requested from the team or or sometimes that looks like a job coach alongside a young person for the first few days on a job or for whatever amount of time is needed um, make sure that there's a good understanding together of um, of what will, what will help the young person in the team to be able to get off to a good start and uh, we've we've seen lots of success last year we one of the um one of the placements was um, with the learning and development team and was largely virtual role, but just sort of the um, what the workplace gets out of that in terms of, I mean, workplaces just typically love working with young people. It's just so engaging to see somebody get started on their career and the, the confidence boost to the young person of like, yeah, you know what, like I, I was a valued member of the team. It's truly life altering. 
we're talking about uh, the, what success can look like, and that's a that's a great example. And it is like what it all it it calls to mind all of the benefits around creating this inclusive workplace. And and one of the things that I think we don't actually talk about a lot is how you end up harnessing some of that energy and excitement and what that does for the for the morale of the of the organization when you're, you know, you're part of, you know, helping to launch a young person down this, you know, career path. And it it's so that's I think we can add that to the bucket of all of the reasons why you want to engage with youth uh, in your company. But I'm I'm going to ask you the opposite as well now. So, you know, when you when you see that potential in a youth that's not being realized because of these barriers that we were discussing at the beginning, you know, I guess personally is it you know, how frustrating is that and also what what can be done about it? Like what what sort of solutions and suggestions do you have to make sure we're achieving that that helping somebody achieve their full potential. I really believe that in Ontario and in Canada, we need a range of sort of program or support options that um, are appropriately resourced, like so that people who have uh, different support needs for getting involved in the workforce get the right amount of support at the right time in the right way uh, to get involved. And, um, you know, so as Jen referenced, like, you know, we're starting to know that there are some you know, there's some school boards that are having a great model for their co-op program. You mentioned Odin's job path that you're sharing around Canada. Um, Odin and Homebler View are involved in helping to promote and coordinate the number uh, with the number of communities in Ontario that are, are starting to work with the Project Search international model. Um, and I think that uh, the more we can... It, enable this that there are there's there's the right types of supports for young people the more we'll be able to you know to uh to ensure that we don't have frustrating situations like this yes i mean we're working right now with a young person who um who needs more support than they're able to access through the publicly funded system right now and they lack the financial resources to pay for the supports that are needed themselves. This is a young person that has volunteered at Home Blurview. I've seen myself very much the their passion for uh, for being part of a team and what they can contribute. But to get started in, in, in employment, they, you know, may need a, a, a support person working with them and their employer over a period of months. And th that's not something that's necessarily easily available. Yeah, Carolyn, you mentioned co-ops. Now, the research shows that, you know, the work experiences during high school increase the likelihood of employment success. And that's where co-op programs, you know, come in, but they're lacking. So why do you think they're lacking? And how do you think that can be changed? What 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 can What can be done to change that? So I guess when we think about cooperative education programming in general, like, so the idea that that's usually something that's connected to an educational institution. So whether th through high school or through college or university, um, some parts of what we've already touched on, you know, like, you know, maybe part of that, uh, the, the awareness on the part of people running co-op about what might be some of the supports that will enable full participation of people with a range of disabilities or some of the barriers to their full participation um, and, and figuring out how this 
the educational institution can work past that in order to make sure that their cooperative education programs are inclusive, first in welcoming in young people for the educational components, and then also in supporting employers and making those opportunities happen. Um, a couple of the things within that that we see can be barriers is, um, you know, sometimes cooperative education, the professional running that course may not have a lot of experience, you know, again, back to this idea of seeing other young people with disabilities and work and may have questions and concerns. And we, we do hear a lot from young people and families that sometimes they get subtly or not so subtly steered away from that as a, a, a course choice. Um, or that they, they've enrolled in it and they're really struggling in getting a placement um, and end up um, being disadvantaged in the type of placement that they get. For example, they might get a placement in another school or educational institution, but what their passion really was was working with animals or something, you know, which we don't do in a typical school. So um, it, it, some of the some of the support aspects really relate to funding. Like it, it's complex and there's no simple answer, but um, you, you know, again, if someone needs a support for personal uh, care during a cooperative educational experience, it can be hard to figure out how how that is accessed. Or again, if someone needs a job coach when you're, it can be hard to access that when it's part of an educational program. And so sometimes that's because the different funding streams are not talking to one another, or we're not trying to we're not taking each person as an individual with what they want to do at that point in time and, and working to remove all the barriers so they can do it. Uh, so sometimes I think we need some of that. Jennifer, I, yeah. I, I, no, see, no, I, see, I see you nodding there. Well, I'm just excited by what, what Carol, excited. I'm very interested in what Carolyn's saying, you know, because I think it also, you know, I think it's all, also a mind shift, you know, these things that a, a young person may require in order to access a co-op should be considered an accommodation. You know, when we think about accommodations in education, you know, that's that's the language we use and co-op is part of that. And as you say, we know there's this this really strong connection between co-op experiences and the skills, those soft skills that I talked about earlier that come from co-ops that we're not seeing in young people who have, um, who have disabilities. And in particular, in the research I did, um, those youth with developmental disabilities. You know, and the other thing, the other thing that I would add, you know, it's a little different to co-op, but, you know, in Ontario, you know, we have this expectation that young people complete 40 hours of volunteer um, work during high school now. And I'm, and, but this, this expectation is not put on those young people who have developmental disabilities. I heard that many times in these, this research and actually learning comes from those volunteer hours. So young people should be being expected and they should be supported um, in achieving those volunteer hours. So I'm not talking about people with disabilities working in a place where other, you know, I'm not talking about them being in a volunteer position. I'm talking about them, that same expectation that we have for other young people, that they should be allowed to access those 40 hours of volunteer experience. Um, so there's opportunities in high school for young people to be exposed to work, but we're not always including youth with disabilities in that conversation. And I guess, you know, Jennifer, that, you know, we look at this push around, uh, or not, not a push, but a um, focus on working age adults right now, uh, you know, the economy uh, there's a, there's a labor short of shortage. We're in some economic uh, struggles, inflation, all of these things, and 
there's a lot of conversation about working age adults. We, we're really looking at, at everything pointing towards them. When we think about historically the conversation around disability and employment, that conversation has picked up more now than ever before. This is really front and center for a lot of businesses globally, locally. Um, but again, a lot of that is really focused on working aged adults. So how do we make sure that youth who have a disability aren't getting left out of these really important business conversations? I mean, again, I think it's a great question. I think it's about laying that foundation and like creating that business case, I guess you could say, and, and making that connection between exposure to employment at a younger age is going to result in or higher likelihood that that person is going to achieve employment as an adult. So making sure that every time we have that conversation about young, all young people in general, you know, we know that this is true for all young people. We, you know, just have a responsibility to make sure that youth who have disabilities are part of that conversation, you know, and that, and that they're part of that conversation in high school when we, like um, skills traits, for example, you know, I, I, I went to um, an event a couple of months ago now at a high school in Ontario that was having a skills competition. It was the first year that those youth from the school system who had identified disabilities were included in this skills, um, this skills competition. It was fantastic to see, you know, so they, and they had, you know, the judges and people who were there were people from, you know, those businesses. So they themselves were seeing young people who have disabilities participating in the same competitions as their peers. So there's lots of things that we can do and must do in order to help making that connection, you know, for businesses that young people with disabilities need to be part of the conversation. If I can briefly add to that, I like I very much agree. And I could say, um, like I think for employers um, specifically, again, thinking of youth with disabilities as an equity deserving group. So in relation to diversity, equity and inclusion strategy, um, really thinking carefully about uh, this group and, um, and what the strategic benefits will be to including them and how to remove the barriers uh, with them and for them. Um, and, you know, I'll make a pitch as well for specifically also thinking about youth who are in high school, um, not only youth who are in post-secondary education or young adults after they're finished their education. Um, and I just again saying, I think at the government level as well, too, we really need to challenge ourselves to all work together to make the funding align and um, and remove the barriers that are limiting our young people. And, you know, Carolyn, you talk about, um, you know, the range of supports, the right time, the right way um we're talking about funding we're talking about policy so sort of uh this might be a bit of a summary question um what do you what do you both think is the key to building an equitable future for youth who have a disability one that's going to create a win-win for all of the stakeholders that we've talked about in this conversation jennifer sure i mean i think it's it's for me, I think belief, right? It's a, it, first of all, it's a belief that, you know, people with disabilities are make up part of the fabric of our community, you know, at that very high level, you know, um, that people who have disabilities belong in our communities and they belong to um, the same, you know, you know, they should have the same access to the same rights that 
those of us who don't identify as having a disability have. And that includes employment, you know, so I think it's a belief system for me, um, you know, that we need to change the way we think and that and that changing that narrative is going to help change those policies and it's going to change, you know, the you know, the capacity of of people who have disabilities to make contributions. And I think the more we see contributions from people themselves who have disabilities, the more this is going to change. You know, so it's, 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 I'm, you know, I'm, I'm dreaming big here, you know, but I know that this is possible. Um, you know, I think we've seen the way in which we think about disability evolve, even, you know, in my lifetime, but I know that it has evolved tremendously over the last 100 to 200 years. I think I'll, uh, you know, agree with that, that human rights stance, um, kind of add um, the, the, the spreading the awareness about how everyone benefits when society is inclusive, um, I think, uh, and it, it raises expectations, um, like as we've been speaking about, and, and then giving this a specific strategic focus, again, whether our level is working with individuals and families or working with communities, or if we're an organization or an employer, or if we're in government really thinking about like, what can I do? What, what is my organization's role? What's the system's role? How do we need to, to be strategic about, about addressing the barriers and, and realizing the full potential? With all of those things being the things that can be done to build that equitable future, what do you think is the most important message for anyone listening to this episode who works with youth or who might be thinking about hiring a young person part-time or, or for a summer job. Carolyn, do you want to take a crack at that? Yeah. So I think for me, it, you know, it's, it's this idea, know that individuals with disabilities of all ages are employed in a wide range of roles and in industries. So it's possible. It, it benefits everybody. The, you know, the first step may be reaching out to an, any, or, you know, any organization that, that can help, like uh, with um, taking some of the first steps. Again, whether you're an educational organization or you're an employment organization or you're, um, you're, you're a business um, or you're a family member um, looking for support so that you can, can think about how to get started. Jennifer, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I agree with, I totally agree with Carolyn. And I think, you know, if I were somebody who were looking to hire, um, and if I were thinking about how, how, how might I involve a young person who has a disability, I would be, you know, do I have a job that would, would, would be suitable for this young person would be one of my first questions. Um, and, and, you know, and then I would want to envision what their contribution could, do, could be, you know, and I would also want to think about what would, what would we need as a business in order to make this, this successful match? You know, for example, if we were talking about a summer um, position, you know, what would we need? And I think as Carolyn said, there are lots of supports out there in the community that may help you if you have questions about what it um if you have any questions or queries or wonderings about what it might be like um to to be a more inclusive um a place of employment there's lots of support out there and so i think out of all of that can we try um to come up with a call to action here so you know, from, from each of you, 
what what do you think is is at least one call to action? And I know it can be different for for everybody, um, for any of these stakeholders. But what's what's one one call to action? Maybe could generalize to say this idea of you know challenge yourself to to have and to hold high expectations for employment, and then help youth to to get the experience opportunities that they need, like outside of their home and school, because we know how that builds capacities and self awareness, and then like really just also being committed to doing your part to help identify what the challenges are and. Um, and to work through some of them. Sometimes they're they're not that hard. They're sometimes bigger in our own minds than maybe mm -hmm. they actually are. So I, I do really believe where there's a will there, we can, yeah, we can make, make starter steps. I think, you know, I guess for me that, that you know, if I were to pick one, as you say, um, Jeanette, there's so many stakeholders in this. Um, but, you know, the first one that popped into my mind when you asked that question was educators, you know, from the perspective of really, you know, if, if, if we are, if you are an educator and you're listening, you know, to kind of really think critically about your, um, your school or your school board and ask yourself, how is it that young people who have disabilities are being included in every aspect of the school experience? You know, so I'm talking about, you know, day trips, I'm talking about science fairs, I'm talking about, um, you know, school drama, I'm talking about sports team, I'm talking about everything. How is it that we are making sure we are thinking about ways to include um, within our school setting and ways to make sure that you know, all young people have exposure to experiences that are going to help them with um, independence and employable skills um, within a school setting? Because if the one thing, the one message that was loud and clear from the work that I've done is that this has to start early. You know, starting this when the young person leaves the school system is too late. We have talked about a lot covered a lot of things. Hopefully people are thinking a lot of things right now. Is there anything we haven't talked about that you think is important to mention? I could uh, mention a, a couple of resources. I think they could be things that if you want to post with this podcast, um, that you, you know, that, that possibly could be helpful. Um, for example, Jen speaking about educate, like the idea of educators and inclusion and how there's so many aspects of inclusion at schools that are fundamental for young people. We, uh, did um, some work a couple years ago to make online learning modules available for educators um, to support their their efforts at inclusion within um, within schools. And um, so I can we can post the link for that. For example, it's called Project Inclusion. There's a module specifically about expectations and uh, engagement in co-op and other things like that. So we would pick up on a bunch of the ideas that we've spoken about today. And uh, uh, Odin contributed to that module as well too. So it was great partnership. Um, part of these awareness building efforts. So that might be a good link. We can put that in the show notes. Jennifer, what about you? Any uh, Anything we haven't talked about that you feel is important to mention? I think, uh, again, uh, you. we always talk about youth as being the future, and, and, and they are the future, um, you know, but the future includes all youth. Thank you for that. And, you know, this episode is actually going to be airing during National Youth Week 2023. Uh, that's actually next week, uh, May 1st to 7th every year. It's an annual event. And I think that the both of you have given uh, our listeners a lot to think about um, for both what's happening now for youth and the future success 
uh, of youth who have a disability. So not not just during National Youth Week, but all the time. So I'm gonna I'm gonna thank you for sharing all of your all of your insights with us, and hopefully. And I'm quite sure you have. You've sparked some conversations out there uh, that are going to carry on. It was yeah. uh, really important. I'm happy to be invited to talk about it together with work together with Odin on this topic. <laughs> it really is an important conversation that we've been having, and one that's you know important to have. And as you said, Jeanette and Carolyn, not just during National Youth Week, but a twenty four seven. Because, and even though it may sound a bit cliched, it's true, young people are the future of the nation and the economy. So Jennifer and Carolyn, thank you for me as well for coming on the show and sharing your insights with us and our listeners. And now we're going to bring this conversation to a close. So that's it for this episode of You Can't Spell Inclusion Without a D. And I'm Jeanette Campbell. And I'm Dean Askin. And to our listeners, thanks again for listening wherever, whenever, and on whatever podcast app you're listening from. Join us each episode as we have insightful conversations like this one and explore disability inclusion in business, in our communities, from all the angles. You Can't Spell Inclusion Without a D is produced in Toronto, Canada by the Ontario Disability Employment Network. All rights reserved. Our podcast production team. Executive producer and host, Jeanette Campbell. Producer, Sue Defoe. Associate producer and host, Dean Askin. Audio editing and production by Dean Askin. Our podcast theme is Last Summer by Ixon. If you have feedback or comments about an episode, contact us at info at odinnetwork.com. That's info at O-D-E-N-E-T-W-O-R-K.com. Join us each episode for insights from expert guests as we explore the power of inclusion the business benefits of inclusive hiring, and why disability is an important part of the diversity, equity, and inclusion conversation. Listen to You Can't Spell Inclusion Without a D on Podbean or wherever you find your favorite podcasts.